Welcome to Remote Controlled, Variety's TV podcast. I'm Deborah Birnbaum. Every week, we'll bring you conversations with some of the best and brightest in television, working behind and in front of the camera. On today's episode, we're talking with Darren Chris, who plays Andrew Cunanan in American Crime Story, The Assassination of Gianni Versace. And then, after the break, we'll catch up with the stars of Fox's new competition series, The Four. Stay tuned. I'm Deborah Birnbaum, and it's my pleasure to welcome Darren Chris. It's my pleasure to be here, Deborah. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I couldn't have avoided it if I tried, though. No, you couldn't. You can't hide from me. So, congratulations on American Crime Story. Thank you. It's this is a fun day today. Talking so, about it. what made you sign on for the part? So, explain. You play Andrew Cunanan. Yeah, um, you're a friendly neighborhood serial killer. Y- sure, <laughs> that's certainly one way to put it. I-, I will preface everything by saying this is the first time I've ever done press for a show that I. I haven't seen, so I haven't experienced really? it uh, in the way that a lot of people are, are asking me about it. Luckily, I was there when we shot. I just don't know how it edited together, and so there's certain holes in, in, in things. So I'll just I'll say that up front. But to answer your question, uh, this was something that Ryan uh, Murphy and I talked about about maybe three and change years ago, and uh, my reaction was, look, I'd, I'd, I would be thrilled to do this. So let me know. And I thought it was something that he just forgot about, and he was just spitballing, and uh, he stuck to his word. And I, I was so glad that he finally decided to do this because there was only so many years I could have uh, done it. But it, another part of me was kind of kidding, and I was thinking, like, geez, Ryan, like, I almost defy you to find another person in your camp that looks somewhat like this guy, is actually half Filipino, is in the same age range. You know, good luck. <laughs> um, although I'm sure there are a lot of a lot of wonderful actors that could have taken it on with a lot of uh, viability. So uh, I can't give them any discredit because there's some guy that looks like me and is my age, some are going, oh, I could have done it. <laughs> and half Filipino. And I could have done it better, yeah. <laughs> Don't exactly. forget the half Filipino. Exactly. But uh, yeah, it was something that I always wanted to do and uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that, I, that he stuck to his word and I'm thrilled that he believed in me to take this on uh, because it's something that I was, was really hoping we would, we would get to do together. Why did you want to do it? Were you intimidated at all at the idea of playing a serial killer? No. No. That's, I'm always interested in people's fascination with, um, with uh, playing people who are conventionally dark. People always think that that's some sort of departure. And while I understand that curiosity, I can't help but feel the same curiosity would be present if I had started with something like this and this is what you knew me for I'd say Darren you're you've, you're used to living in sort of a dark sinister world how do you feel about playing a happy singing teenager is, right. is, is, is that just such a trip for you I mean that must be a weird place to go to mm-hmm. and I think what people forget is that we're actors that actors are actors and we depart for a living I'm in the business of empathy I'm in the business of of recreating characters and people and creating different scenarios now sometimes they're framed within the backdrop of a of a fun teenage singing group and sometimes they're in the in the realm of a true crime sociopath and while that sounds absurd because you're like darren those have nothing to do with each other i approach them with the same process and with the same weight and the same amount of significance and they have the same currency to me and they come down to the same common denominators and Ultimately, the end product is different, but it's with the same due diligence. So uh, 
So to answer your question, no, there was nothing intimidating or scary about it. it I just, I like, I, I liked having the amount of clay to work with. Um, not to, to belittle Glee, but Glee existed within a very a much simpler world. And, you know, we didn't spend as much time with Blaine. Um, so when people go, oh, he's much more complex character, it's like, well, we also, it wasn't the Blaine story. It was a story about many kids in a, in a, in a larger sphere and in a much different world that had much different dialogue. Whereas this, uh, regardless of the horrible things that Andrew committed, it's just having the amount of things to really sink your teeth into, dark or light. Sure. Uh, so in that sense, I was extremely excited. And Ryan and I had never really worked together before. He'd never directed me on Glee. Um, he did sort of for like one scene one day because somebody was sick, but I'd never gotten to really get in the trenches and really work with him. I'd only known him socially as a friend and as a mentor, and he's always been a champion for me. So for us to both be in there creating this world was really, really a treat for me. How did you even approach finding your way into Andrew? What did you start with? Same thing you start with everybody. Um, I think the number one thing I like to tell people is we all have more in common, not only with each other, but with the worst person you can think of than we like to admit or we like to think about. The differences are small in uh, are small in number, but huge in content. So once you start boiling it down to the primary colors, uh, this makes things easier. It's a it's a real nice point of entry. Um, really, sort of almost juvenile common denominators, like you know who doesn't know what it's like to 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 want to be loved, to want to have something greater than what you have, to rise above your station, to 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 feel marginalized and to want something more than that. There's all these sort of basic wants and needs. Obviously they're taken to extreme levels by certain variables that are, that are actually out of Andrew's hands. Uh, the time around him, the things mm -hmm. that sort of facilitated these, these uh, misguided decisions, uh, his family life. There's, there's a lot of things that, that uh, kind of pressure cooked a lot of, um, unfortunate variables with Andrew that sort of allowed these much crazier things to happen. But again, to answer your question, sorry, I keep going off. No, that's okay. It's all interesting. Um, I really did find a lot in common with Andrew and I hope other people will too. We get lost in the most horrible things and you forget that there are a lot of human elements that are at the beginning of the equation mm -hmm. that through a series of pluses and minuses and multi multiplication symbols, things get distorted into things that we can't understand or relate with. But, but the basic numbers are, are pretty similar to things that we do understand. How God, much... I'm really proud of that one. <laughs> <laughs> well said. <laughs> yeah. How much did you know about him going into it? How much research did you do? Well, it's, I was excited because I, I was, I, I, it was, I've never played somebody that actually uh, – that it was a real person. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you'd think there'd be a bevy of things to call upon. But the truth was he was a hundred different people to a thousand different other people. So, okay, so that makes it difficult. And I did meet a lot of people. People would approach me that had, had known Andrew in different parts of his life. 
Um, and I will say, side note, a lot of them were extremely positive. Um, really? People who knew him as a young man or who knew him when he was in San Diego early on that really liked him and were mortified when they heard things that had happened. And that was a really comforting thing to know that, you know, you know again, fi- this show kind of, um, not kind of, it, it explores the best parts of him and the worst parts of him. And I think it does a good job of doing that on both both of the men that we explore, Johnny and, and Andrew. But um, it was nice to hear that because I, I would live in a lot of really dark places for Andrew and a lot of people... You know, you would hear about Andrew being this affable life of the party, and that was corroborated with a lot of people that I met. But anyway, uh, you have all these different accounts from people that were documented through uh, Maureen Orth's book, and so you can glean whatever you can glean from from that book. So there's a couple different Andrews we're dealing with here. There's the actual person that walked on this earth, which is anyone's guess because I didn't meet that person, and even if I did, I don't know which version I would have gotten. There's the person you can take from Maureen's book, which is kind of the same thing. It's all secondhand experience. And then the third one, which is the one that I followed, which is the person that was written on the pages by Tom Rob Smith and the world that was curated by Ryan. And while that person, even with me not being Andrew, being being a different person, that's ultimately going to create a certain – there's going to be an artistic license taken with with narrative and performance that – that it's anyone's guess how close to real life it was, but that's irrelevant. What we're doing is telling this, we're telling a narrative, not so much about Andrew's life, but about the kind of person that was created against the backdrop of the things that he was, he was raised in. Um, so, uh, yeah, did that answer your question? You did. You were talking about, I asked you how much research you did. And so, oh, so there's only so much research I could do. And so let me put a bow on it. The the research and the work was really just informed by the scripts because, you know, I could go to his home in San Diego where he where he grew up or, or hang out in certain parts of Hillcrest and and almost uh, just coincidentally a lot of the places where we shot and the place that he was I've happened to be you know I grew up in the Bay Area so there are things that places that he went and things that he did that I was around for but that's sort of irrelevant at the end of the day you just have to play these scenes and again break it down to primary colors of. What does he want in this scene? What does he not get in this scene? And and eventually they all kind of convalesce in this larger story. I guess that's what all acting is. It's not just not just Andrew, but um, it almost gave me a get out of jail free card from doing too much research because you really couldn't. You just have mm-hmm. to service the scene and then trust that that Tom is writing something and Ryan is creating a world that that does that narrative some kind of justice. But it certainly puts you through your acting paces. You're called to do on a lot of, let's use the outrageous or you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, off the charts things. Was there anything that particularly you were like, I'm I'm not going to do this, or something that was particularly tough for you to get through? No, uh, which is not to say it's easy. It's just that it's expected. I think things are as only as hard as as they are unexpected. Mm-hmm. So if you're, my brain was already calibrated to the things that he was capable of. So I was in in effect, ready for all of it. Um, this kind of ties into, you were saying, uh, being what kind of preparation you can do. I guess I translated that as research, but I think as far as prep on a daily scale is concerned, one just has to be available to all emotions at all times with somebody like Andrew, that at any point you can fire off in any direction. So uh, it's just making yourself as available at, at all times. I guess I'm just repeating myself. Mm-hmm. But you know, when you have somebody that can be so flippant whether in a happy sense or in a in the extreme murderous sense, uh, 
those are all existing with him in, in, in these huge extremes. Again, to, to bring it back to how we have common denominators with people like people like this, we're all like that. We all can be anything at any time. We forget that. You know, you get bad news in two seconds. You're going to be a completely different person. That's we we have that in us at all times. Um, it's just that it existed on a much grander level for Andrew. Uh, so I guess it's sort of amplifying a lot of things that that uh, that I think are already within me to kind of match his grandiosity. Was there one thing? Grandeur, in, I should say. Was there one thing in particular that you think set him off or set him on this path? Because we get to see him in various forms throughout his life and dealing with all the issues you're talking about. When you say set him off, you mean particularly what to kill somebody? Yes. <laughs> I don't. Th- I don't think it's ever one thing. I think it's such a complex thing to take someone's life. I thankfully have never done that or ever really truly want. Well, I mean, I guess we've all had the inklings of wanting to, but whatever experiences in our life other than our moral compass has has restrained us from doing so. So do you think he was just lacking a moral compass? I think at a certain point, yeah. But I think that wasn't... I think that moral compass was was hacked at and was deteriorated outside of his control than it was him deciding to let go of it. Um, so in a sense, I'm not saying Andrew was a victim, but in a sense, everybody's sort of a larger victim of something out of their control. Uh, and one of the great things that I think American Crime Story does is is really examine not only the crime itself, but the time around him. Very much. And there's a lot of things that, like I said, this whole thing was a pressure cooker that made this the perfect place and time for this to happen. You know, you when these tragedies happen, you go, how does this, how does, how does anybody let this happen? It's a really healthy mix of a lot of unhealthy things. Um, Talk more about that because it's, I mean, I think the show is very much about sort of homophobia and what, you know, what the issues were at that time. Sure. I think when people, Ryan talks a lot about how, yeah, that that's a, that's a big part of our story is homophobia. And I think when people hear that word, they think of the, uh, the most severe cases of that, which, which manifest themselves in hate crimes and in violence. Uh, but I think there's a much larger um, place where this exists and more smaller, accumulatively smaller things that make larger institutionalized manifestations of, of homophobia. Um, the fear of dealing with the gay community, not only in a homophobic sense, but in the fear of thinking that you're being prosecuted for being gay or being scrutinized for being gay. There's all these sort of fears and uncertainties that are uh, strengthened by the sort of slightly post-AIDS scare that comes up in, in local police work, in the Federal Bureau of Investigation, that let these things kind of slip through the cracks because it's dealing with a community where there's a lot of, a lot of fear. Not only within um, sort of larger institutions, but within Andrew himself, growing up Catholic, but growing up in San Diego, where there's this really extreme dichotomy between conservative and, and progressive thought. You have the military and then you also have don't ask, don't tell you have President Clinton telling, you know, telling the world that, you know, gay people can be in the military. And there's all these weird, there's just, it's this really bizarre um, mix of these very juxtaposed ideas that are living on top of each other. And Andrew's right in the crosshair of that. Mm-hmm. So his own personal shame of, of wanting to celebrate homosexuality where convenient, but disavowing it when it was... Um, well, when that was convenient too, when when that gave him some sort of 
step forward. So there's not only homophobia at a, on a larger social state, scale, but within himself and from his family life. And you, once you, I guess, I don't know if the show will get this because again, I haven't seen it, and it's so it's such a huge, almost epic of of the time and and this guy's life. But you know, when you see all the pieces from my perspective, living with this guy for almost two years you really go, oh, man, like, what happened is, it's almost textbook. It's, it, it, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's so sad to go, gosh, like, it all makes sense now. Like, I get it. Like, I get how this was inadvertently supported. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, and, and I think gay identity is a huge part of, of this I say this as a cisgender straight man but you know I, I think it's it, it should I, I don't think it's out of place for me to say this I think the gay community is a community that is traditionally predisposed to identity changes and it is a community that has understood that um, that journey in, in a man or woman's life and how at any point you can, you know, to, to be a closeted person or to be an out person, there's a natural sense of re-identifying yourself throughout your life through different people. It's, it's, it's one of the backbones of, of the support community of the gay community because it's something that these men and women have to go through. So when you have somebody who is suddenly not only, uh, reveling in in uh the habit of being different people but um God, how am i putting this i'm gonna rewind for a second i was just gonna say two different things i'm just saying having somebody who's being whose different identities are being supported but then being used in this sort of manipulative sociopathic way Th- that's just an example of what I was saying, how the world around him is sort of inadvertently supporting these really, what we would call now creepy things, this, this behavioral pat- these behavioral patterns. You're like, oh, how, how would anybody do that? Like nowadays, like you, you, would, you would be called out, social media, you would, you know, somebody who knew you as one name in California and somebody who knew you as another name in Minnesota could call you out. But at that time, not only was it technologically uh, easy to evade. <laughs> right. It was also something that was supported. You have, you know, closeted men in the military. They understand that, oh, he's like this with this person. He's like like this with that person because he has to. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a mode of survival. And uh, I think that, you know, it unfortunately became a huge problem. Anyway, there's so many things to peel apart with No, this. obviously, I, I no, there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot going on there. There's so much happening, yeah. Do you think mental illness played a role in it? Oh, yeah, big time, big time. I think I stray away from just pinning it on that because it, the culpability becomes too simple. And this, I have even gotten into uh, what I think is a much larger issue, which is the um, sort of the debilitating effect of uh, the pop- popularization of crystal meth in the gay community, especially in the 90s, post-AIDS. Like That's a whole other can of worms uh, that destroyed a lot of lives and destroyed a lot of uh, psyches. Um, so that definitely has a sprinkling of uh, culpability too, but just to say it was drugs or mental illness, I think it just tears the story apart. It tears mm-hmm. our, it tears our narrative apart. Um, and yes, while I do believe that was a, a huge part, it, there are so much other issues there, uh, 
like I said, to focus on the social aspect of it is the most compelling to me and most uh, important dialogue starter and, and the most um, significant mirror to our own time now. But yeah, uh, you know, his, his mother was an, was an over medic, you know, especially nowadays with our sort of uh, opiate uh, addiction problems in the country and our, and our, our, our pill addiction problems that's killing a lot of people. Um, this was an over medicated, under, under, uh, under understood uh, mother with mental illness that uh, I think the stigma of mental illness is still very much real today and mm-hmm. how to handle that. And, and, you know, she was left to rot and, uh, and that was the mother that raised Andrew. So, yeah, I think pieces of that go into Andrew's own psychological upbringing, whether or not he inherited the same uh, uh, mental illnesses. I, I don't know. I'd be right. curious to know if that's actually on paper, but uh, there's certainly behavioral things that you go, Oh yeah, that's, that came from somewhere else. Um, but so there's just the cool thing about the show it, it, to wrap it all up. And it's something is that it, it, there's so much going on with this young man. And there was so many wonderfully promising things about him that were torn apart by horrible things that were just going around, going on around him. And, uh, it, I think the things that people say, oh my gosh, I watched the show and you're so creepy and all the things that on a mainstream conventional level, people, people will call scary or creepy or disturbing all those things to me. I never felt that on set. I just, my heart just broke constantly for, for this guy. And obviously while what he did was horrible, abhorrent, like that's obvious. Like I don't have to say that. Right. Um, you know, it, it, I think I think the wasted potential is the most heartbreaking tragedy of all of that. Yeah. Perfect. All right. Well, it's been a pleasure. Unfortunately, we've got Thank to end it there. But I thanks I so talk, much. I could talk so much about this. <laughs> I could talk to you endeavor. forever about it. It's fantastic. And best of luck. Thank, Thank you. you. So that was what Darren Chris had to say about stepping into the role of a serial killer in the new installment of American Crime Story. Up next, Variety's music editor, Shirley Halperin, sits down with the stars of The Four, Sean Combs, Megan Trainer, DJ Khaled, and Charlie Walk. Thanks for listening. First, let's talk about music and the music industry. So, Charlie, you've been doing this for a long time. What, 51 Billboard number ones? Yes, I've, I've been attached to or touched over 51, which has been amazing, yeah. Which, by the way, we counted Yes, we together. did count. <laughs> wow. We did count last year. We tried to figure it out. I'm so glad we did that exercise. I am um, too. <laughs> so, okay, so the success rate in the music industry is about, I don't know, one and a half out of ten. Does that mean that out of this group of contestants that you will have, really there's only one maybe two genuine superstars in the bunch? I think there could be actually more. We've, we've seen some great things along the way. You know, what's happening with the social part of this show, especially driven by Diddy and Khaled, is magical, meaning we're watching real-time the contestants coming in, you know, as, they, as the word spreads about the show. I believe the next biggest stars are already out there. I believe stars are born. Um, and, and, I, and I see that happening because they're learning that the platform of the show is actually about making someone 
a huge star, given the opportunity with the with the component of Republic Records, this incredible panel, and of course the iHeart on the Verge platform, which gives which treats you like a superstar once we get the records right with the talent that wins. And then you put the Diddy magic on that stuff. You know the way he gets behind any brand. Imagine the way he gets behind a music brand in 2018. It, it becomes really interesting and something that's very powerful, in my opinion. That's why I'm here. Okay, but the music industry and record labels, people who develop artists, it's a very controlled setting, you know? You want a certain look, you want a certain sound, you have to work with a certain producer. You're kind of giving away the controls by letting the audience decide who who goes through in this. Isn't that, like, a weird way to, to, to no, launch? Not, not really, because before... Not really, because before... That when you challenge somebody, you challenge one of the four, obviously we let them get to the point to challenge. So that means they have some greatness um, and potential to have sit in the seat of the four. So now the four that we liked already that's on the four has to challenge and, you know, go into sound class mode. And then you about to see who's greater at that moment. Um, so I feel like besides being the winner, I feel like even that challenger that might lose their seat or win the seat, either they both win because it's about the people at the end of the day when it come down to liking music, meaning as in supporting the music and playing it and streaming it. So it's important that the fans are heavily involved, and it makes me feel good knowing that they're excited the way we was excited and seeing what we seen. And that's when you know you have a star because when you have a superstar, everybody loves a superstar. Everybody loves an icon. That's why they're icons and superstars. But does isn't there a chance that it would be like, oh damn, I wish that person didn't go. Well, that's why it's so intense because we said no a lot because we all have to agree on this person because we're gonna work with them at the end of the day. It's not like they get a, a little bit of fame and they leave. They get to work with us and we make sure they have a record deal, a hit song, and they're on iHeartRadio. Um, artists watch. Artists on the verge which is an automatic play on radio, which I don't have, which he doesn't have, and he doesn't have. So it's an incredible opportunity. And right in the beginning, we all have to agree. If one person says no, or if one person says yes, it doesn't matter. We all have to say yes. Yeah, one, of the, one of the things is we can provide the platform, um, you know, make an incredible show, and also just, just, just really let it happen. And that's what happens in the music industry. You don't know who's going to walk in the door at any given time. Um, but what we have to do and what we try to do on the panel is make sure that we don't let anybody through that we don't think could possibly that we could possibly work with. And so, um, you know, it's, it's, it's intense and, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's risk in the music industry, period. So um, you, you have to go with the flow and, and draw the energy that you attract and hopefully we're going to draw that superstar energy. Okay, so when you make a superstar or a superstar is, is launched, how much of it is talent, how much of it is marketing and A&R, and how much of it is the song? The song is a big part of it. Like, I'd say 90% is the song. And the artists themselves, I know a lot of artists who have success really know themselves and are really confident and are having are truly enjoying themselves when they're on stage. Every time I see you perform on Instagram at those clubs, you're having the time of your life. And I believe it, and that's my favorite kind of artist, and I think that's what makes them a huge superstar. And the marketing and, and all of that stuff that goes behind it, what's a, what percentage is that? But listen, it's a very transparent game today. 
Okay. It all plays out on social media. You know, the stage is still important, but people can, you know, people have that BS detector more than ever before. So uh, authenticity is key. And then artists having an opinion and a vision and something that we believe in to follow is the key and the difference between someone that does okay and someone that actually becomes the biggest star in the world. And that's just a consistent fact right now in culture. Um, the biggest stars were born that way and had their journey to have their voice be heard and carried out their vision, which uh, uh, you know a massive public followed. Okay. Well, Charlie, there was a moment in the first episode, which I don't know if it made it to the final cut, but you said... Um, so you want to be up there, you want to be playing clubs, you, you know, and the guy said, yeah. And you go, yeah, well, we're looking for an arena star, <laughs> which was like, welcome back down to earth. What were you trying to convey? Um, uh, you know what I was trying to convey? And I was trying to actually, guys, do this for the audience inside the house. This is not a singing competition. Great singers, or was it a wedding I was at last night? Uh, a great sitting was at my friend's church last week in Miami. Okay, those are great singers. This is an artist competition. That's the difference between everything else. What does a great artist do? They're able to play arenas. They're able to graduate from the club to a radio city to Madison Square Garden over a period of time. The same act. That's the mentality that I'm trying to pervade inside, the, in, inside this coliseum to the audience. Uh, that's a differentiating, differentiating factor in what we're trying to do here. Um, Diddy plays arenas. Khaled's going on tour playing arenas. So, so, and she plays arenas. We're in the arena business. Stadium, stadiums. Stadiums. I see it. That's the next step, 100%. Yeah. Well, one thing also I noticed during that first taping is that the audience, and I've sat in a lot of American Idol, X Factor type audiences. This audience was rowdy. They were fun. They were energized. I may have smelled a little marijuana. In my yeah. Was that done on purpose? <laughs> was it cast specifically to have like a different energy? Like, no offense to to the elders out there, but I could not see a grandma sitting in that audience the way the that they did. Tone was set on, by I Diddy, don't... and I think you got to let him answer the question because it you started see my off. My dad out there. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Diddy, I, Diddy set the tone. I, I think it, I, we wanted to have a true reflection of the music industry with its diversity, so we wanted to make sure that hip pop was represented and R&B and country and rock and they could all battle each other because that's what happens on the charts and we wanted the fans to be in there we wanted all of these kids that are that are streaming music that that follow it intensely and and um this is one of the num this is one of the, the number one things that 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 joins us together I would say besides religion is music and so you know it's it's it's, it's powerful and if we're going to come with something new and fresh, we also have to have a new, fresh audience. And this crowd has an opinion. Yeah. yeah. And we let them have it. And that's very different on, like, other shows. Like, other shows can go, oh, and boo, whatever. But this show, they vote, and they're all part of it with us. That's great. All right, last question, which I'd love for each of you to answer. You guys obviously know the music industry very well. Khalid, when we did our Hitmaker special, Multiple people said you were the best A&R in the business, literally. like That, that was like a quote. Um, you know your music industry. What have you learned about the TV business through your experience so far? Um, from my experience, you know, I just be myself. I think that's the, that's the way to make great TV is being yourself and, you know, at the same time, you know, pushing yourself every day to be great. Um, when it comes down to a music show like this, this is what we do. You know what I'm saying? So it's like nothing you could teach me, tell me. We can go through a hundred meetings, 
press this, that, you know, give thanks, you know, number love. But you can't really tell me nothing when it come down about making music, putting music out, um, emotions about the music, you know, the trials and tribulations. You know, we, we've all experienced it in so many levels. So, you know, I feel like I'm a very experienced music man. And, and if it comes down to be on TV, you know, Khaled being Khaled is like a guaranteed hit. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's good television. <laughs> yeah. Megan, what about you? Um, what I learned about TV, television. Hi. Oh, yeah. I was worried. No, no, I can eat it. I just gotta type it in my app. I wasn't. I didn't say it. Did he said it? <laughs> um, I what I've learned about television. I was nervous. I was nervous at it because I've never done this before. I've been on shows like one night, but not like this. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, I was worried that it'd be fake, and I was worried to the second it happened. I was worried they would tell me what to say, and and I was scared of that. And I was like, oh, I'm gonna be a fraud up here, and it's gonna be. Awful, but it was all real and it was all emotional and I cried and those were real tears and I was proud to be a part of something like that. And I thanked them at the end of the day, the producers, and was like, thanks for making this magical show and I'm so happy to be here. And they're like, are you okay? I'm like, I'm so good. I feel so lucky to be here and to be a part of this history and just feel like I get front row seat, which is really cool. Um, One of the things that I know about the TV game is that it's an incredible platform. And especially when we're trying to launch new stars and give people exposure, um, TV still wins. You you still sit at home no matter what is streamed live or what content is on there. You still pray and wish and work for that chance to be on primetime television and to be performing. And so, you know, that's, that's, that's the thing about television. I, I, I've told all of these guys, like, you know, when I when I did a television show, it's a different type of energy. Like, the next day, it's a different type of energy. Like, you know... You probably can't go to the store, but you have a platform if you want to say something or you have an artist that you want to launch. It's, 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 it's still, you know, the, the, the go-to platform. You know, I'll say um, when they asked me to be on the show and Diddy had called and we were talking to the producers, you know, someone had said to me, uh, what, what character are you going to play? And what I loved about Diddy is I'm playing me. And the important part of this show and the differentiating factor, I think, when you talk about TV, TV can be tricky. And um, I wasn't doing a show that was going to be tricky. I wanted to do a show, especially in today's environment, that's truthful. Um, So for me, being able to play me, taking my role during the day and putting on stage at night and letting it live through this brand, the four, with these these guys, the core four, uh, has been not just inspirational for me but truthful. And um, and that, and that, that's what I find with TV. If you can be truthful, I think you end up with a very successful platform. And uh, that's, the, that's the journey we're on right now. All right. Well, we're really looking forward to seeing the show and how it develops. And thanks, you guys, so much for spending Thank time you. with us. Every, every Thursday night on Fox, guys, 8 p.m. Check us out, The Four. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this week's show. We'll be back next time with another great episode. We'll be talking with Lena Wave, who created the new Showtime series, The Shy. See you next time. Mm-hmm.